So Matthew 14, verses 22 to 36. And I've titled this message, Prayer, Storm, and Walking on the Water. Last week, we looked at the murder of John the Baptist. That was followed by Jesus' miraculous feeding of 15,000 or more people. We pick up the story this morning, which begins with the word immediately, which tells us that the miraculous meal was just over. And many of the multitudes were packing up their stuff and leaving the scene, while others had something else in mind, as we're told in John's Gospel. In John 16, verses 14 and 15, again, we're at the same place at the end of the feeding of the 15,000. It said, then those men, the people who had been at the feast, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, He departed again to the mountain by himself alone. But first, Jesus sent his disciples away. Matthew 14, 22, we read, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So Jesus sends the disciples back toward the northeast of the lake to the region of Capernaum and Bethsaida, where they had come from the day before. And he is able, with perhaps some difficulty, to send the multitudes away so that finally, finally, he is able to get completely alone for an extended time with his Father in prayer. Remember what we read last week of why Jesus was even over there on the far eastern shore, what we now would call the Golan Heights? Remember back in the earlier part of this chapter, verse 13, Jesus had just been told of John the Baptist's murder. And we read, When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. So his objective was to get alone. He needed to talk to the Father. He needed to grieve. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. So when Jesus has heard of John's murder by Herod, he wanted to get away to a deserted place by himself. But the multitudes followed Jesus. So despite his grief, 
with compassion. He spent the day healing them, which was followed by that great miraculous feeding that we studied last week. Now, Jesus prayed often, speaking with his Father. Of course, as God, their communication was constant. But the human nature of Jesus nonetheless needed to have frequent talks with his Heavenly Father, even as you and I do. I'll read that again. Jesus needed to have frequent talks with his Heavenly Father, even as you and I do. I've often wondered what Jesus and the Father talked about in those prayers. There are a few of Jesus' prayers recorded, mostly very short prayers, except for chapter 17 of John's Gospel, which is entirely prayer. It's called his high priestly prayer. When he prayed for his disciples, and all believers over the centuries, including you and me. Of course, we remember his blessing of the food that we read last week. We may recall his prayer before the raising of Lazarus. Three times he prayed a prayer, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Garden of Gethsemane immediately before he was arrested. And he prayed three prayers from the cross and several others, as well as numerous references to other times that he prayed. The point is that prayer was a critical part of Jesus' life and ministry, even as it should be for every one of us. In fact, Prayer is still, right now, very important for Jesus because he makes intercession for us while he sits at the right hand of the Father. We're told that in Romans chapter 8, verse, 20, verse 34. He's continually making intercession for us. We read elsewhere that the Holy Spirit is doing the same thing. And folks, aren't you glad? Because we need to be interceded for. Because we sin. And he's always making intercession before the Father. But now, back to Matthew. Jesus sent his disciples away by boat, apart from the crowd, probably so that they wouldn't be caught up with the crowd's excitement to make him king, and also so that he could be truly alone with the Father. In the last part of verse 23, we read, Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea. Tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. 
The Greek word translated evening means either from 3 to 6 p.m., from 3 o'clock in the afternoon to 6 p.m., or from 6 p.m. through dusk to the beginning of night. So Jesus was praying at least from nightfall until the fourth watch of the night, which didn't begin until three o'clock in the morning. It's important to know a few things about the Sea of Galilee also. It's also called the city of Tiberias. It's called the, 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 the Sea of uh, Chinnereth. Right now, most often in Israel, they refer to it as the, the, the Sea of Kinneret. By the way, that's their primary uh, reservoir for water for the land, for the entire nation. It is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It's about 700 feet below sea level. It is about 13 miles from north to south and about eight miles from east to west. And it's about 53 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea, which is at sea level. Also in the northwest corner are two mountains with a deep gulch between them. There they are. Two mountains with a deep gulch between them called the Horns of Hattam. These two mountains, I want you to look at that picture. They act, they act like a funnel for the winds from the Mediterranean that go down 700 feet to the Galilee. And that's what caused frequent storms, really violent storms, on that medium-sized lake. Can you just imagine? You're looking right now, you're looking northeast, and you can imagine 53 miles to the west is the Mediterranean Sea at sea level, and the winds drop down 700 feet, and they get pinched right at these two mountains. They get pinched so that they are extremely violent when they come across and hit the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Again, I wanted you to see this because that's the reason that we read often in the Gospels of there being such a violent, violent storm on a relatively medium-sized lake. And that's why. That's why. In fact, many people, when they go out on, on the Sea of Galilee, uh, tourists uh, like myself, we go out in these larger boats and usually there's a teaching 
while we're on the boat and maybe some singing, we see somebody demonstrate how they threw the nets out from the, from the boats back in uh, the time of Christ. But the person who is running that boat is always watching. You see the trees behind me. He's always watching those trees and he's always watching those mountains to see if there's any evidence of a violent wind coming. Because if that happens, he cuts that little trip short and goes quickly to Capernaum, where, there's, where, where they are based, really. So that explains a lot of really what's in this story. Because those storms play a part in the gospel story here. And, and at the time when Jesus slept in the boat while the disciples thought they were being swamped, you may remember that, and they came and woke him up and said, Lord, don't you care? We're perishing. <laughs> so that's another time when those storms happened. Now, in Mark's version of the story that we're reading now, we see that Jesus saw his disciples in difficulty with the wind and waves out in the middle of the lake. In Mark 6, verses 47, 48, it says, Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. Now, if you put that together where Jesus began to pray in the first watch of the night, certainly before nine o'clock in the evening, Jesus was praying from at least nine o'clock until three in the morning. That's at least six hours that he was spending with the Father. Of course, they had much to talk about. But now, back in Matthew, verse 25, we read, Now in the fourth watch of the night, again, that's from three to six in the morning, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. The word translated troubled is really very mild. Uh, troubled is very mild because the word actually means they were stricken with terror. Stricken with terror. And as such, they were saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. So it was dark. And evidently the disciples had been fighting that storm for hours. 
Because at the evening before, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. And again, as we said, he must have been there for quite a while. So after seeing them struggling in the middle of the sea, Jesus finished his prayer, went down to the shore, and went to them walking on the water. I've got to say, <laughs> that's, that's a great direct way to, to reach them, isn't it? There they are in the middle of the sea, so let's just walk over and help them, which Jesus did. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I just, I just love that. But when they saw Jesus, they were terrified, and old superstitions rose up saying, it's a ghost. Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. This is typical of God and angels in Scripture. When they suddenly appear to humans, you may recall when the angel of the Lord appeared to Joshua that we studied last year. You may recall when, when uh, Gabriel appeared to Zacharias, when he appeared to Mary. Many times, in fact, when Jesus appears to John at the beginning of the Revelation, many, many times, God and angels, when they suddenly appear, they immediately comfort and assure them. Jesus uses be of good cheer seven times in, in the Gospels. And throughout the Bible, that phrase, do not be afraid, is used over 50 times including many by our Lord. And Jesus uses both of these phrases here. But in verse 27, Jesus says something that is translated, I'm just going to say it's translated incorrectly. It's wrong. It's where they, the translators write, saying that Jesus said, it is I. That's not what he said. You go to the original language, and you find that Jesus actually speaks the covenant name of God. He doesn't say, it is I. He says, I am. which the disciples all knew what that was. That powerful and holy name is what they actually heard Jesus say. And aside from being bad English, it is I. In context, it should be, it is me, if they're going to use that. But aside from that, it is an extremely poor, very weak translation. 
compared to the actual name of Yahweh, which God gave to Moses back in Exodus 3. And if you look at those verses in Exodus, I didn't put them out for you, but God says, tell them I am that I am. And then right after that, he says, this is my covenant name forever. This is how I should be known. That's why it always upsets me in pretty much every translation we have because of a Jewish tradition, we mistranslate it every time. And that's where you always see Lord or God in capitals. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying Lord or God. It's saying Yahweh. I am the covenant name of God that he said he should be called through all generations. I make that point because it's one of those soapboxes I get on. And it really bothers me that translators have continued that tradition of mistranslating that. It just really bothers me. I think I've told you all that before. But okay, moving on. Getting off my, my soapbox here. Verse 28, and Peter answered and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter, when Jesus said, be of good cheer, I am, do not be afraid. Peter said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. That's an amazing thing for Peter to say. But that's Peter. That's Peter. So he said, so Jesus said, come. <laughs> and when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. We need to remember that. When Jesus commanded him to come, he did. He did. And by the way, he's the only disciple to do so. He's the only one to have the faith to step out and walk on water. But, verse 30, when he saw that the wind was boisterous, or contrary is a better translation, he was afraid and beginning to sink. Oh, when he saw that the wind was contrary, he was afraid. So he began to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus was so excited that Peter had actually done it. But then he saw the wind and he took his eyes off Jesus and 
he began to sink. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You see, it appears that Peter was looking for confirmation that it was really Jesus. And he does so in this incredible way to ask Jesus to command him to come to Jesus by walking on the water. He wanted to be commanded because if you're commanded by Christ, you obey. That's the only option you should have. And he does it. He walks on the water. Isn't that terrific? And I don't know, what does that say about you and me? Apparently, like I said, Peter believed that only Jesus could utter such a command. So Peter obeyed, stepped out of the boat, and looking at Jesus, he walked on the water. It was only when Peter took his eyes off of Christ and he focused on his circumstances that he began to sink. He had stepped out literally in faith. And while keeping his eyes on Jesus, he did what is naturally impossible to do. But when he saw the wind and waves turning his focus away from Christ, his faith failed. As Jesus said in mildly rebuking him. And folks, isn't that really a powerful lesson for us to step out in faith to do whatever our Lord commands us to do. Keeping our eyes on him. And when we do, we too may find ourselves doing the impossible. How many of us, and we're all going to raise our hands, how many of us when we feel the Lord prompting us to do something, but, oh, I could never do that. I'm not qualified to do that. I'm too old to do that. I'm too sick to do that. I'm too weak to do that. Oh, I haven't been called to do that. We've all heard those excuses, right? We've all made them ourselves, right? But that's wrong. If God, who knows us perfectly, commands us to do something, that means that we are able to do it in him. No matter what our circumstances, no matter what our weaknesses, no matter what our frailties, no matter what our ignorance, if he commands us to do it, he will make it possible for us to do it. I can't tell you how many times I debated with the Lord after Pia and I heard his calling to move to Denver and plant a church. How many times I said, God, I'm not a pastor. I can't do that. Yeah, I like teaching and teaching is good, but I, I, I just, I don't know. And he quickly answered, he says, I know. 
go do it. <laughs> so we did. But let's, let's not throw Peter under the bus because he sank. As I said, he was the only disciple to step out and actually walk on the water. And uh, another good lesson, when he felt overwhelmed by circumstances, he called out to Jesus for help. And so must you and I. That's what we should do too. If we feel overwhelmed by circumstances, call out to Christ. Don't go running around being helpless. Don't go running around screaming and yelling that you're in trouble. Go to Christ. Notice Peter's prayer. Lord, save me. One of those popcorn prayers that we throw up so often. But that's what we should do too. To look at this from another direction, when we hear our Lord calling come to us in some apparently impossible situation, do we look steadily at him and obey, or do we let our personal weaknesses or our circumstances make us fear and doubt and then we fail to do what our Lord has commanded. I think we've all done that, and we need to stop. We need to understand that if God is telling us to do something, we are commanded to. You know, often I hear people talk about, well, God asked me to do such and such. Or, you know, Jesus asked me to do this. No, he didn't. God never asks us to do something. He tells us to do something. It's a command. It's not a request. He's God and we are his bond slaves. As such, we have one answer. Yes, Lord. And then do it. Okay, moving on, verse 32, and when they, meaning Jesus and Peter, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. You know, we often focus on the story with Jesus sleeping in the boat, but we should see this episode as well. Not only did Jesus and Peter walk on the water, but without even a word being spoken, the storm stopped. Along with his healing and miraculous feedings, the events retold here clearly demonstrate that Jesus has complete authority over creation. Even what we call natural laws like gravity. They also fulfill some prophecies of the Messiah. We just read them earlier, some of them in Psalm 107, verses 29 and 30. It says, He calms the storm. 
so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet, so he guides them to their desired haven, as we'll see in a moment. In Psalm 89, we read, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. In Ezekiel 34, God says, I will feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel, which we just saw last week. In Micah chapter 5, it says, And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So after witnessing all that they had seen, his disciples reacted in the only reasonable way, as they also do elsewhere in the Gospels. Verse 33, we read, Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now, in John's version of the story, we learn an additional item from Psalm 107.30 that is fulfilled. Remember, we, I said, so he guides them to their desired haven. And I said we'd see that in a minute. Here it is in John 6.21. Then they willingly received him into the boat and immediately, now they'd been in the middle of the sea. Okay. They willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. The boat was at the land where they were going. He took them to their desired haven, as Psalm 107 says. So, they make landfall safely only to have more demands put upon Jesus, which was, after all, one of the main reasons he'd come. Beginning in verse 34, to the end of the chapter, we read, When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they set out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many touched it, were made perfectly well. Now the, the region of Gennesaret, Gennesaret was a city right on the northeast corner, kind of probably right to the left of my of my shoulder here, this area here. That's Gennesaret. So it's very close to Capernaum and Bethsaida. So the ending of this story is so much like the story of evangelism. People are saved. 
So they go and tell others the wonderful news, bringing them to Jesus to be healed and hopefully to also listen to and receive Jesus' words of salvation. In this case, as with the story of the woman with a flow of blood for many years, the people focused on just touching the hem of Jesus' garment, which was most likely, well, let me ask, have you seen hyper-religious Jews in their black outfits and the men have their, their hats? And Have you seen those people? If you look at the men carefully, you'll see that they have on a prayer shawl and maybe under a shirt, but they have on a prayer shawl and hanging out from the prayer shawl on four corners, two in the front and two in the back, are these little, little tassels, these little tassels. They're called tzitzit, T-Z-I-T-Z-I-T. Tzitzit, that every Jewish man would wear, like I said, on the four corners of his prayer shawl. And hyper-religious Jews still do. Those tassels supposedly are there to remind that man of the requirements to keep the law. And we, we can find where, where God told them to put that on their prayer shawls and so forth. But it was to remind him of, really remind him to obey the law, of the requirements of the law and to obey. So these people and that woman just went up and, and touched those tassels, just touched them, and they were healed. In this story, after the men of Gennesaret recognized Jesus, they quickly sent word throughout the region so that all who were in need of healing could come to Jesus. Interestingly, they weren't looking for his touch of healing, but just to have Jesus' permission to simply touch the hem of his garment. The result is noteworthy because Jesus answered and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. You see at the beginning of verse 36 it says they begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. They asked for his permission. Clearly he gave it they touched it, and they were healed. As many as touched it were made perfectly well. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. But I want to conclude in a somewhat different way. We come to the end of chapter 14, but we should look back to see the very many things that Jesus did in this short, very busy 24-hour period. Folks, what we've looked at in chapter 14 is just one day, 
in the life and ministry of Christ. Jesus learned of Herod's murder of his cousin, John the Baptist, and he needed to get away to grieve. He tried to get away by boat to be alone with his disciples and especially to be with his father. But instead of being alone and getting some private time, Jesus was allowed, was followed by a great multitude. But rather than frustration, Jesus feels compassion for the people. And he spends much of that day healing them and sharing his teachings with them, which undoubtedly included the gospel. Then when it was late afternoon, instead of sending the multitudes away as his disciples suggested, he miraculously fed from 15 to 20,000 people with 12 baskets left over. And when they realized what Jesus had, had done, they recognized him as Messiah. And they were ready to take and make him king, if necessary, by force. And by this time, Jesus had already sent his disciples away by boat to the north. And then he was able to send the multitude away. They'd been healed, taught, and stuffed to the full with food. So he could send them away. They were, they were happy. They were satisfied. So Jesus was finally able to get away. To be truly alone, to spend several hours alone with his father in prayer. Then when it was still night, as we said, the fourth watch between three and six in the morning, Jesus looked out and saw his disciples struggling with the oars against the wind and waves in the middle of the sea. They'd been at it for many hours. Now, remember last week I talked about that fake teacher who doesn't believe in miracles who said they were actually on the shore? We read in the text today, not only in, in, in Matthew, but also in Mark, that they were in the middle of the sea. So what that guy does, what... What Barclay does is he directly contradicts the Word of God. Okay, I made enough of that case last week. And when Jesus looked out and saw them struggling against the wind and waves in the middle of the sea, he went to them walking on the water. Then he saves Peter after he challenges him, commands him to walk on the water, and Peter does. But when he sinks, he saves Peter, calms the storm, and miraculously gets the boat to its haven, the, its destination on the northwest shore near Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Gennesaret. 
when they got there, the people there recognized Jesus and spread the word throughout the region, leading to another time of healing, this time by just touching the hem of Jesus' garment. So quite a busy and full 24 hours for our Lord. And that's what our Lord did for three and a half years. Always punctuated with a little or maybe some significant time of prayer. For three and a half years, he worked and he worked hard for the people he loved and for the people that he came to die for, including you and me. Quite a day, quite a wonderful day. But I have to ask you, as I just went through this list of all the things that happened to him that day, put yourself in his position, hearing of a beloved close cousin being murdered by a monster. Then trying to get away. But instead of being able to get away to be alone, he finds a multitude there. And he doesn't complain. He doesn't say, hey guys, give me a moment, will you? In compassion, he ministers to them all day healing them. And then when it gets late in the day, despite what his disciples suggest he do, he miraculously feeds 15,000 people. Imagine you doing that. Imagine spending all day healing people and then having to feed them and not having the resources to do it in human terms, but as God, he, he was able to do that miracle. And then when it, that was over, to have people mumbling to each other and talking and saying, he's the prophet who was to come. Let's go make him king. And he heard that. So he sent the, the disciples away to get him away from the crowd because they could be caught up in that kind of uproar and also to get them away from him so he could get up on that mountain and spend a few hours in prayer. But as he ends his prayer time, he looks out and he sees them in the middle of the sea, struggling against strong windstorm with high waves. So he finishes his prayer, walks down the mountain to the shore, and walks straight out to them in the middle of the lake. And immediately they're at their destination. And when they get there, people recognize him and send out to bring more people to him to be healed. Imagine if that was you. 
I don't have that patience and I'd be tired, <laughs> you know? And even though he was tired, he let the people touch the hem of his garment, those tassels, those tzitzit, and be healed by him through that. Because that was an act of faith on their part. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible story. This incredible 24-hour day that our Lord did that is detailed for us here in Matthew, Mark, and John. And Father, we, we, we look at this. We try to put ourselves in Jesus' place and really it's, of course, it's not possible but we, we can feel the fatigue that he must have felt. And Lord, knowing that Jesus did this continually for three and a half years, only to end up being tortured and slaughtered again for our sakes, Father, it's a wonderful thing. It's a horrible thing. But it's so wonderful. And it has done so much. Father, we thank you for what Jesus has done. Jesus, we thank you for experiencing this and for going through the experience of the whipping, the torture, and the murder on the cross for us. We thank you. We thank you for the fact that we know that what we get in the Gospels is just the tip of the iceberg of what you did for those three and a half years. We know that you did so very much more than we read in these short Gospels. But we are very, very taken, very thankful, knowing that you went through all of this so that you could save mankind if only mankind would come to you to believe and receive you. And I thank you for those of us who have done so over the centuries. And I pray, Lord, that many more would believe in you, would come to believe in you and receive you as their Lord before the end comes. For we ask that truly in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.